0: Uh, Before we jump into the sermon this morning, I had just a a small, uh, somewhat personal, somewhat ecclesial announcement. Uh, This Thursday and Friday marked the 49th gathering of the West Virginia Convention of Southern Baptists. And so uh, we gathered up in Martinsburg and uh, had a fruitful time of deliberation. Uh, Friday morning, there was a vote uh, for who would become the next president of the state convention, so the Baptists here in West Virginia, and I won the vote in a landslide, so um, thank you. Um, What I want to make clear with that is I have little to no aspirations of becoming uh, a famous politician. I have great aspirations of making sure Baptists in West Virginia look more like the people of West Virginia. I'm the youngest in history, uh, as you probably can guess. We found someone that was 28, we think, but we think I'm, I'm 26. So um, the election of me broke precedent in many ways. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was a significant moment. And I think that what that means for us is a couple of things. Thing one, people around the state, old people, young people alike, uh, believe in what you're doing. They see what you're doing. They understand that what you're doing, church, not what I'm doing, what you're doing is special. During the nomination speech, he shared a lot about resurrection, and uh, people started cheering because in just several years, taking 12 short-term trips, over half the, con- the, the congregation's been involved in missions. We give a lot more than a lot of established churches in percents, and some in actual giving to mission opportunities in Europe, in India, and in the cooperative program. You guys are, are in many ways setting a pace for how to be a cooperative church that is locally distinct and faithful to the gospel. And so um, I want to make sure you understand what happened this week. And I want you to understand the significance that you're playing as you're committing uh, to being a part of this movement, uh, and it's being recognized and people appreciate it. So I'm honored. Please, please pray for me. Uh, it is somewhat of a divided uh, time in just how we think about ministry philosophy, uh, how we think about things going forward, and so I need your prayers as I'll be making some uh, some decisions and leading some, um, some things over the next uh, year, Lord willing, two years, uh, unless someone runs against me next year, which is quite possible. So... Um, on to what is most relevant. Uh, we are nearing the end of our study through Colossians, and as way, by way of the quick refresher, Paul is tearing down wrong ways of thinking, and he's building up a right way of thinking. He has addressed false teaching within the church, and he has given a compelling vision for the Christian Life. He's given a vision for the Christian life as one that's all about Jesus, as a miraculous gift of God received by grace. And he has helped us understand that as one body, we are living into who Christ has already made us. As one body, as one people, we are living into who Christ has already made us. Colossians is famous for being Paul's letter that is explicitly all about Christ. We are becoming who Christ has made us by killing sin and by putting on the new self, putting on that which is beautiful. As we're killing the old self, the new self is coming to life in the power of God. That venture is both individual and that venture is corporate. In this letter, as in the rest of the epistles, God is teaching us how to live as both the gathered and scattered people of God. Now, gathered and scattered sounds like a way to order potatoes at Waffle House. I'll take mine uh, hash browns. Gathered and scattered, please, right? Um, That would be smothered and covered. That's the best way to get Waffle House uh, hash browns, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Amen. Uh, Gathered and scattered though is is really how God orders uh, the church. Man, that's corny. This morning, we think about how to live particularly as the scattered people of God. Meaning, how do we live in spaces we already occupy? How does the gospel lead us to live in spaces we already occupy, particularly in relationships that involve really close proximity? Husband and wife, parent and child, employee and employer, which is a not great approximation of bond servant and master, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. This morning, we learned that God orders relationships. God calls us to live rightly in those relationships, and God rewards those who obey Him. That sort of sentence gives us the three main subheadings of the sermon. The first, God orders relationships. The second, God calls us to live rightly in those relationships. And third, God rewards those who obey Him. Let's consider the truth that God orders relationships. The text begins jumping right into these rules for Christian households, right? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Over and over again, we see the Lord. Verse 18, as is fitting the Lord. Verse 20, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, obey with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, you are serving the Lord Christ. Before we go on to consider sort of these relationships, husband-wife, parent-kid, employee-employer, which I'll qualify momentarily, we have to lay a sort of corrective baseline. We must understand the centrality and authority of God's word. And here's what I mean by that. The way I think about being a husband, the way I think about being a son, the way I think about being an employee, employer, though that's, again, not a perfect way of translating, which we'll cover, and that's the last time I'll qualify that. The way I think about these things is influenced by so many things. It's influenced by our parents. In premarital counseling, we work through, you know, what did you grow up in? Because that's gonna be where you default to. We, we do what we know. When we think about these relationships, we look at those around us. What did our parents do, for better or worse? We're influenced by our culture. Western Americans think differently about families than folks in Eastern countries, than people in India, or China, or even Japan. We are influenced by our experiences. Some of us are all about wanting to have a family because we think that's a great thing. Others of us are like, man, that's the last thing on earth I would ever want to do. Some are optimistic about the possibilities of healthy relationships within family context. Others are pessimistic about families, and their experiences is largely why that's the case. We're influenced by our aspirations, by the things we want out of life, the things we want to be true, quite frankly. And we need to make sure that the Bible is our strongest influence in teaching us how to relate to those around us, even and especially those who are closest to us. So, my point, rightly understanding Scripture is really, really important. Before I want to be a traditional conservative or an enlightened progressive or whatever identity you're building to impress people with, I want to be faithful to the text, I want to live as is fitting in the Lord. I want to live as pleases the Lord. And I want to live in ways that are serving the Lord. So really, three things help us think about how God orders relationships. We fear the Lord. When you fear God, you don't fear anyone else. We understand His power, His greatness, and His majesty. We obey the Lord. We recognize His greatness. We recognize His authority. And we seek to live In response to his word, the infallible and errant word of God that teaches us all that is necessary to live a life of godliness. We fear the Lord, we obey the Lord, and we live as is fitting in the Lord. We want to let the gospel, we want to let the teachings of Scripture come to bear on how we think about being husband, wife, being parent, child, and going throughout all of those very intimate spaces in our life. Seven times in nine verses, Paul roots his instructions not in the culture of the day, but in the Lord. We live as those who are under authority. God teaches us how to live in whatever station we may find ourselves. Will you, will I, will we submit to God's word or will we join the rest of humanity in trying to find a better way that does not exist? So from the jump, we must know that God orders relationships. Now, with that humility, let's begin to interpret the text Subheading two, if you're taking notes, God calls us to live rightly in relationships. A little bit of history is needed to really, I think, get some context. In the ancient world, the family was central in virtually all things. Usually the head of a household was a man who exercised authority on three levels for this household. He would be the husband, he would be the father, and he would be Uh, The master. There would be bond servants in many, many cases who lived and worked in that house. And that practice, uh, not in sort of a forced sense, but uh, in a in a real sense, is still practiced in many parts of the Eastern world. Now, if there's enough physical space, that family unit could expand to include a bunch of people. It could include converts to Christianity who maybe were kicked out of their families, or maybe it was a single person or whatever. And they might live in this sort of uh, extended household, and they would think of themselves as this, this oikos, this house, this family, this, this unit. When the head of the house converted to Christianity, almost always the whole house converted to Christianity. And so the apostles would talk about going from oikos to oikos, house to house, and, and they would go in, they would share the gospel. The, the, the man, the master, the head of the house would, would believe or obey, and then the other people, because this is the context they're existing in, other people would hear that, and they would obey the gospel. They would believe the gospel. And what would be common as ways to think about existence Thing in these families were these literary document type things called uh, household instructions, so to speak. And so in the ancient Roman world, there would be these household instructions that helped people think about ordering their house, ordering their house with their husband and wife, with the parents and kids, and with the folks that they employ. What we have here is a Christian version of those instructions, What we have here is instruction for how to live domestic life in light of the gospel. Luther, uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this portion of text a, a hostafelm, a hostafelm. Now that you're in Christ, household, now that you're in Christ, oikos, now that you're in Christ, family, this is how you should think about God's ordering of your house. I know you're used to these Roman ways of ordering your house, but now that you're in Christ, this is how you think about ordering your house. So let's think about those relationships, working our way from wife to husband, parent-child to master and bond-servant. Verse 18, I have so much just sinus stuff going on, so if I like spit, please ignore me. I won't do that, but I really feel miserable. Oh, man. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. One of the things about preaching through books of the Bible is you stumble upon texts that you would not choose if you were just choosing a random text. And that is what we have here before us this morning. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, there's two basic commands at play here. Wives, the command is what? To submit to your husbands. Husbands, the command is what? To love your wives. Now, this is significant and it's good news. This works together. Love and submission work together you're taking notes, if you're a husband or a wife or aspire to be either, love and submission work together. If you command submission without love, you have missed the heart of God. If you command submission without love, you are more like a Roman emperor than the God of the Bible. When I've heard this text explained from well-meaning people, usually, it's almost always in the context of a married couple coming to some impasse and the woman just has to deal with the decision of her husband. And my question for us is, why do we start there in our explanation of that text? Why don't we start here? When a husband and wife come to an impasse, the husband must seek to do that which is most loving for his wife. Does that make sense? Why do we always go first to power and authority and submission and this? Why don't we go first to what Jesus would call a weightier thing? Why don't we go first to love? Why don't we first say, if a husband and wife come to an impasse husband, you must discern what is most loving for your wife and wife. You must submit to that which your husband deems is most loving for you. Now, I'll address some uh, objections you may have to that in a moment. Many in our culture are more concerned with power and authority than love. And those who always want to grab authority are the least worthy to hold it. Those who always want to grab authority in families, churches, workplaces, all they care about is lines of authority. Those who are always trying to grab it are least worthy to hold it. Now, you may say, I just, you know, I don't like that word, submit. Well, maybe you'll like the word, uh, it's Greek for submit, <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not, because that word that Paul uses is different from what you would find in a typical Roman set of household instructions. There you would find the word hippochao, hippochao means obey, and that's the word that Paul is going to use when he's talking to children in just a moment. Now don't miss this, the Romans would say, wives, hippochao to your husbands. The Christians are saying, wives, hypotoskene to your husbands, which means don't just obey your husbands blindly. It means lovingly align yourself with their leadership as an equal under God. Paul is teaching women they are not inferior beings who exist at the rule of tyrannical husbands, that they are equals with their husbands. They align themselves, though, with his loving leadership as is fitting to the Lord. And this complementary vision of man and wife is one in which man is seeking to love and serve, and the woman is submitting to his love and service and aligning herself with his leadership as Christ exists with the church. I hope this helps us think about how a wife submits to a husband in a Christian family. It's true. But if you come to that through examples that just demonstrate the husband's authority, if you come to that with a, with a preconceived notion that, uh, that women must just obey without any, uh, any thought in the matter, then I believe the Scriptures are there to correct us and say, no, 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 no. In God's family, women are valued, women are cherished, and women are not property of men like they would be in the rest of the culture at that moment in space and time. Yes, women, submit to your husbands, but husbands, sacrifice yourself for your wife, as Paul will say in other places. We move on to children and parents. Verse 20: Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Again, In the Roman world, parents had supreme and absolute authority over their kids, and if they wanted to make them feel about, you know, a foot tall by demeaning them, that was entirely within their rights, and that was something that they could do. Paul grounds his words in the fifth commandment to children. Children, obey your parents in everything. This pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord, kids, when you listen to your parents and when you do what your parents say. Uh, A funny story, growing up, mom and dad, they didn't, like, censor everything that we watched and listened to, but they were really aware of, like, what we watched and listened to. And one of the things that we were never allowed to watch or listen to that I never understood at the time, and I do now, were shows in which the kids all thought the parents were stupid. Were shows in which, like, the kids always, like, made fun of the adults. And they were helping us obey the fifth commandment, right? Helping us learn to be people that don't think, oh, my parents are stupid. Oh, they don't get it. That, 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 that grumbling is not healthy. It's cultural, but it's not good. The Christian children obey their parents because that is the God-ordained relationship in which they exist. And they honor the Lord by obeying parents. And parents, how do you honor the Lord? Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't berate them. Don't treat them poorly. Don't treat them as less than human beings. Instruct them in love. Listen to their questions and answer them with integrity. Build them up in the truth. Some might might translate this, Fathers, do not embitter your children, right? Meaning don't just antagonize them for the sake of being Don't get in back and forth spats with them as if they're your brother or sister. Instruct them in love. Build them up. Discipline them. Reprove them. Rebuke them. And encourage them. We don't want them to become discouraged. We want them to be full of joy. We want them to be encouraged. One of my theology professors at Southeastern, I didn't have this in my notes, so I'm probably going to butcher the, the quotation, but... He said, work is the labor of an adult and wonder is the labor of a child. Work is the labor of an adult and wonder is the labor of a child. So in other words, he's saying, give kids space to wonder at the world and love it and help them see the God who created all things and who is good and who loves them. I'm not a parent, so take this for what it's worth. But God orders our relationships. Parents seek to Love your children. Seek to encourage your children. Discipline your children Rebuke your children when they're wrong. Respect them as people. Treat them how you want to be treated. So we've talked about children and parents. We've talked about husbands and wives. Now on to this third level, picking up in verse 22. Uh, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, In heaven. An important distinction from the get. The family is ordained by God. Institutions of slavery and forced servitude are not. The family is ordained by God. Institutions of slavery and forced servitude are not. That being said, in ancient cities, oftentimes between a third and maybe even up to half of the population would be in some form of forced servitude. So the question is, the Bible is written not just to the wealthy. The Bible is written not just to the powerful. But when you are a servant in a family, and you hear the gospel of Jesus, someone comes to your household. And let's say you're you're in the kitchen cooking and someone comes in the household and they call you in and you sit down with the family and you're listening and someone's telling the gospel message to you. They're telling you, listen, not long ago a man named Jesus lived. He lived in accordance with the scriptures. He lived the perfect life. He died in your place. He rose again from the dead and this message we're proclaiming to everybody who will hear it. What do you think of this message? What is your response to this message? When they hear that and they think about this Jesus who lived the perfect life, who died in their place, they understand the gospel, that they're saying." can be forgiven in this Christ, and that they can live God's way when they submit themselves to this Christ, what happens next? Is the gospel for them? What happens to all of these thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people when they believe the gospel, when they hear the gospel? What's happening in these verses is sort of a regulation of a worldly institution without an endorsement of a worldly institution. What's happening right here in the fledgling stages of the movement that is Christianity is a way to live within an institution without endorsing that institution in which they live. In fact, There is a list in 1 Timothy 1 of those who are unrighteous. And in that list, he includes enslavers. Now, in Revelation 18, God foretells the destruction of the wicked, including those who, quote, traffic in human souls. Here, Paul is not concerned with the reversal of the social order. But in the gospel are the seeds of revolution that will change the social order. But in these moments, Paul is concerned with how to live faithfully as a Christian in the world as we inherit it. Us Westerners, we think we can just change the world. We can't. Paul is teaching us in these moments, here is how you can live faithfully as a follower of Jesus in the world that you have inherited. After all, this world is not your home. And for a whole lot of people, they needed to know how to live as a servant to another person in their home. Now, I trust this morning that none of us are bondservants. But many of us, most of us, pretty much all of us do not have the independent wealth to live on our own. So there is a sense in which we are working for another person to provide income for our families. So for the sake of this being a clear sermon and the principles of it being applied and not just a helpful history lesson or apologetic argument, let's think in terms of employee and employer. Four things. First, do what your boss says with a pure heart. Really easy to do, right? What does it mean to do this with a pure heart? It means you assume the best in their motives. It means you do it without grumbling. It means you do it without thinking it's irrelevant or it's so stupid or it's beneath you or you could do better. Do what he says with a pure heart. Two, don't be a people pleaser. Paul is teaching bondservants, I know you don't think anyone sees you, and they might not, but you're not doing this to be seen by anybody else, because your Father in heaven sees you, and he'll reward you. Don't be a people pleaser. Do the right thing because it's right, not because you'll get a promotion. Do the right thing because it's right, not because you'll get a promotion. Three, whatever you do, work heartily. Work heartily. Care about it. Give it your best. Actually think about how you can do the best job possible with the task that's set before you. Work heartily. Work with the best you have, with all your mind and all your strength. And fourth, bosses because many in the room would employ another or be in a position in an organization that's above another. Be just and fair. Why? Because you have a boss and he's going to judge how you treat those underneath you. Why do you embrace these roles? Wives, why would you submit to your husbands? Husbands, why would you... Love your wives. Parents, why would you seek to lovingly lead your children? Children, why would you just seek to do what they say? Bondservants, masters, why would you seek some degree of of mutual love and respect with one another? Leading us to our third and final point. Because God rewards those who obey him. Because God rewards those who obey him. Now, in Roman law... Uh, many bond servants would be pretty much like uh, another part of the family if you were in a nice, well-functioning household. But no matter what, these servants, they did not have an inheritance. They would be born with nothing, they would work their whole lives, and they would pass nothing on to their children. Imagine how just frivolous that sounds, right? In the U.S., right, we, we, we learn a lot about you know your parents work and then and then the, the next generation Reaps the benefit of their work in some ways, and they start ahead of where they would be, and, and so and they work hard, and they try to pass on to their kids, you know, whether it's it's a home or money or uh, you know co-signing on loans or, or whatever that is part of how uh, we think about social mobility, part of how we think about uh, moving up in the world, part of how we really think about our work and its value is is tethered to uh, earning and passing on. Whether we would cognizantly be aware of that, there's this, you know, I'm paying on this house, which feels like it will never get paid off, but I'm also accumulating wealth, and that wealth is mine. That's how I make money. And so if someone were to limit you from being able to accumulate wealth, that would affect what you can pass on to those who are, Behind you, And, and thinking about the, the, the plight of someone who would be in a much lower class in the ancient Roman world, imagine how frivolous it would feel if you're just spinning your wheels and you're working all day, but you have nothing and you'll never have anything, and you'll never pass anything off to anyone in your life. This idea of an inheritance would be so far from you. And that's why I think it's so beautiful in verse 23 where Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Bondservant, in Christ, the reward that awaits you is better than the reward that awaits the first foreign Roman prince servant, In this world, you are nothing. But in the next world, you will reign with God Almighty. Heaven and the new Jerusalem will be filled with people who none of us have ever heard of throughout time and space who love God with all their hearts and minds, work not to please man but to please God, and did what was right and are receiving their reward from Almighty God. Those who are economically and socially disenfranchised hear this, you will receive your reward from the Lord because he is who you serve. Um, You may be low on the totem pole this morning. Maybe you're a young teacher, a young nurse, and your principals or the doctors treat you like you don't know anything and you're just struggling to keep it all together. Maybe you're disabled and you feel less because you can't go get a job and, and, and provide money for the people around you. Maybe you're at a dead-end job doing something that you don't see how that job connects to the next stage of your life because you've bought the American dream that that job is somehow meant to bring you fulfillment and purpose. Or maybe you're just like, I'm just a here-to-get-paid job, and you don't see the the reason to really work hard and and, and come to every day with integrity. I just want to remind us that salvation is not social mobility. Salvation is not social mobility. Bigger houses mean more debt, I assume. More stuff means more problems. Paraphrase of a great theologian, more money. No problems. And so we begin to know that salvation doesn't happen when we just get more and more and more people see us and more people uh, recognize us and more people think that we're awesome. Salvation happens when we see Jesus face to face. Salvation is receiving Christ. Salvation is reorienting our whole being around God and His work in the world. Whatever you're doing to fill time and make money, do it for the Lord because He has something better than a paycheck waiting on you when you see Him. Don't cut corners. The Scriptures say that the wrongdoer will be paid back and there will be no partiality. God will not play favorites. The world will. Many will. But God will not. So hang in there. Bond servants, hang in there. Employees, hang in there. Husbands struggling to love. Wives struggling to submit to loving leadership of their husbands. Hang in there. Glory is coming. Uh, Nate, if you want to come on up to the stage as we wind our way to a close. In the rest of the letter, we're going to have a couple more sermons, and Paul is going to give some final instructions to the church at Colossae, and some final greetings and such. And, And we're beginning to sort of get a picture of the whole. We're beginning to see a picture of who Jesus is and and what he's done and and why that matters over every sphere of our lives. We're tearing down old ways of thinking and building up right ways of thinking as we, this morning, leave here as the scattered people of God, the people of God who were sent into the world. We must submit to God's rule in the most intimate parts of our lives. If I don't obey God in my home, I won't obey God anywhere. If the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done, and why it matters... If the gospel doesn't impact the way I love my spouse, the way I raise my kids, and the way I interact with the people I see every day, then I must ask, has the gospel really impacted my heart at all? Because I would argue that the family is that God-ordained unit where we work this stuff out, and God's family is a family of families. And so God's teaching us how to live in our individual families, and in our individual households, the place you go to every day, because God knows that these, this isn't like a building with apartments. It was in 1912, there were apartments up there. But we don't just like all live here in like a commune, and come in here and gather, and then like, we leave. We leave this gathering, and we go home, and then we go to work, and then we go back home, and then we go out to eat, we go to the movies, whatever. And the essence of what Paul's teaching us is that God doesn't just care about what happens when the church is gathered. Oh, well, he we ultimately, he absolutely cares about what happens when the church gets. But he, ha- he cares about what happens when the church scatters. That as a husband, as a wife, as a kid, as a not-yet-husband, as a not-yet-wife, as a a never-going-to-be-a-husband, never-going-to-be-a-wife, as a part of a family, as a part of a household, as a bondservant, as a neighbor, as a whatever, that I'm there as an agent of the gospel, an ambassador of the message of the gospel. I'm there as a son or daughter of God, and I must figure out how to live rightly under God's rule and reign in the everyday spaces of life. So this morning, when we come to this table... When we come to the Lord's table, we come as a family of families, a bunch of people, singles, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, employers, employees, and we confess Christ as the authority in every one of these relationships. Turn to Christ this morning and obey Christ in every part of your life. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we're thankful for your word. Your scriptures tell us that your word contains everything that is necessary for a life in godliness. And so I ask for a few things this morning for our fellowship. I ask for the humble realization that you order relationships. Help us fear you, help us obey you, and help us live as is fitting to you. I ask God that you will teach us through your word, through your spirit, through prayer, how to live rightly in those relationships. God, raise up husbands in this fellowship who are sacrificial lovers and not authority grabbers. Help us raise up husbands who see their wives not as uh, trophies or as possessions or as limitations, but help, help us raise up husbands who see their wives as equals created in the image of God designed together to flourish and grow. Lord, raise up from our fellowship an army of wives who are humble yet courageous, who are kind and and meek yet strong and wise and mighty. Help us raise up wives who trust their husbands that they can submit in difficult seasons, in difficult decisions, even if they don't see what's going to come of it. Build bonds of trust in these marital relationships whereby these are partners working together, loving each other, serving you together in complementary ways. God, in our fellowship, raise up parents who love their children, who discipline their children, who model for their children how to be a wife or a husband or how to be a parent. Father, God, raise up fathers who don't live out their lives through their children. Raise up fathers who don't provoke their children lest they become discouraged. God, raise up kids who who obey their parents because they want to obey you because they want to please you. Help us raise up kids who have space to wonder at this great world you've made and how great you are who have made it. Help us be a church who sees each other's kids as our own kids. That it takes this whole fellowship, this whole family of faith to encourage each other, to spur one another on, to love and build each other up in truth. And Father, as we live in this world, we've inherited. We don't inherit a world with a bunch of bondservants in a master's home. We inherit a world where we have to work for people from a living. Some of us are employers. Some of us are employees. The world knows some of us. The world will never know some of us. Help us obey with pure hearts those who are above us right now. Help us do the right thing because it's right, not because it somehow gives us a promotion. Help us work heartily in everything. Fill us with encouragement, especially those who are in places right now where they frankly don't want to be. And God, give in us a holy and righteous longing for your reward. Help us desire to see you and know you more than anything else in this life. Lord, remind us that we don't live for accolades in this life. We live for accolades in the life that is to come. May it be so this morning, Father.